Thank you to those who led us this morning. Just lots of beautiful music today. There is no Kids Connection today. It's the first Sunday of the month, and we're actually breaking from Kids Connection for the month of July. So just be mindful of that. Jan Fry is going to be leading up our Kids Connection ministry beginning in August. And just to kind of plug that as we go forward. Um, we're excited to be able to offer that to our families. There's a great curriculum that we've adopted using the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you're familiar with that resource, to shape that Kids Connection curriculum. Uh, we want it to be for pre-K and kindergartners, so kind of pre-readers, uh, those that are a little bit more difficult to occupy in the, in the service context. And we also want to use it as sort of a transitional um, season for those children to move from the nursery ministry and then gradually into our corporate worship environment. And so they sit in here during worship and the prayers and some of the things we do, and then during the preaching time they go in there, get some teaching of their own. Uh, they do that for a couple of years, and we think uh, that intermediate step helps them uh, to be you know, first graders, second graders that sit in here and worship alongside their family the whole time. So just as you see um, things for Kids Connection here in, in the weeks to come, I just want to encourage you, pray through volunteering for that, uh, because that is a worthwhile ministry. It's purposeful. It's not just watching kids because they uh, bother us in here. It's because we really think it's an important step for them to take, all right? Cool. All right, turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. Safe to say we have a large number of people in our church who know a thing or two about airplanes. We've got military pilots and civilian pilots. We've got guys that do aircraft maintenance for a church our size. I'd say we have more people who know how to fly airplanes, are learning to fly airplanes, or can fix airplanes than just about anywhere. But consider this, and you know this, but it's still amazing to think about. Just over 100 years ago, which is not a long time, nobody knew how to fly airplanes. Why? Because there were no airplanes. In 100 years, we've gone from the non-existence of airplanes and air travel to something like the Airbus A380, which is the world's largest passenger aircraft. Some of those A380s have beauty salons and duty-free shopping on board. One model even has a swimming pool. You can swim in flight. They have staterooms with beds. Man, wouldn't that be nice? And I've never been on an Airbus A380, but every time I fly... I do marvel that there are 300 of us, we're 35,000 feet in the air, we're going about 450 miles an hour, yet we're all complaining because there's no overhead bin space, right? It's, it's air travel, yes, it's a tremendous hap- hassle, but it is amazing. It's almost in the category of miraculous for me. I mean, you pilots, you understand the physics of flight, thrust and drag and lift and all of that. You know, flying is not really all that astounding to you anymore. But I don't understand any of that. I just think it's a miracle that we can do it. I just marvel at the fact that I I can get inside this huge piece of metal. We take off, I read a book, I go to the bathroom, I get on the internet, I eat my pretzels, and in a couple hours, I'm in another city, right? It's crazy. It's almost like magic, right? It's a journey that 100 years ago took over two weeks, you know, with somebody probably dying along the way. I can make between breakfast and lunch. It's a crazy, crazy thing. And my only experience with, with flying is with you know, civilian aircraft or commercial aircraft. A lot of you guys here, you've flown military aircraft. You know, you've been in airplanes that have just remarkable capabilities, speed and agility and firepower and all these things, just amazing stuff. And I bring this up because in 2015, our fascination with flight is basically gone. 
You know, when the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk in December of 1903, their achievement captivated the world. It changed the world. Yet we live in a city where air traffic is almost constant, and we hardly even notice it. We don't even hear it anymore. And my point is, the same thing can happen to our hearts when we talk about Christ being crucified. We wear crosses around our necks and have them hanging in our living rooms, but I fear that we've heard and we've read the story so many times, we're no longer astounded by the cross of Christ. So please, as we read what we're about to read today, keep in mind, this is breathtaking stuff. This is the most marvelous, brutal, fascinating, awful event in human history. We're about to read about it. It can, it can never, it should never get pedestrian. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. Inspired by the Holy, Holy Spirit, Mark writes. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is God's word. The hour has come. Jesus had predicted that all of this was going to happen. He told his disciples three times it was going to play out just exactly the way I read. Jesus submitted to his father's will in the garden. He agreed to drink the cup of God's wrath. He walked into the trap of his betrayer, Judas. He stood silent in the face of wrongful accusers. He looked deeply into the heart of Peter as he denied him. And at the whim of Pilate, he was exchanged for a murderer, a man named Barabbas. The Jews want him dead because he says he's the son of God. The Romans agree to kill him because he says that he's a king. He's been beaten, flogged. Starting in verse 16, we have now four distinct scenes that make up the final moments before his death. They're there in your notes. We have the parody of the soldiers, the passerby Simon, the passion of the Savior, and the provoking scoffers. These four distinct little scenes 
that help us watch Christ as he goes to the cross. Let's start with the parody of the soldiers. If you remember back in chapter 10, Jesus said that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. Jesus tells his disciples this not only as a point of fact, not only as a word of prophecy, but he says it to underscore what would really be taking place at the cross. He wouldn't just be dying a martyr's death. No, at a much deeper level, being delivered over to the Gentiles is a mark of being under God's judgment. When we were working through chapter 10, I pointed this out to you. Jesus knew what it meant, and Jews knew, I should say, Jews knew what it meant to be delivered over to the Gentiles. It was embedded in their understanding of the Old Testament. Psalm 106 says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage, and he delivered them into the hand of the Gentiles, so that those who hated them ruled over them. The same idea is expressed by Ezra. Ezra, as he acknowledges the guilt of the Israelites, these people of God who have wandered far from God, Ezra 9-7 reads, And for our iniquities we have been given into the hands of the the kings of the lands, the Gentiles, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to our utter shame. This is what is happening to Jesus in the scene that I just read. He's being handed over to the Gentiles, these Roman soldiers. But more importantly, he is under the judgment of God. Why is Jesus under the judgment of God, you ask? You know, he's an innocent man. He has committed no crime. He's blameless. Why is he placed under the judgment of God? Because he's bearing your sin. He's dying in your place. You are not an innocent person. You are not blameless and free from condemnation. Your sin requires judgment, and it's the judgment that Jesus took upon himself when he died at the hands of evil men. And these Gentile soldiers, they do to Jesus just as he said they would do in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Jesus predicts the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Then he says they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words. He says, I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. Isaiah 50 verse 6. That's that's what's happening here. And there's a basis to their treatment of Jesus. Six times in the first 32 verses of Mark 15, we are told that Jesus is the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews, yet he has no court, he has no subjects, he appears to have no dominion or power whatsoever. He appears to be a king without a kingdom, which is no kingdom at all, or no king at all. Therefore, his faux royalty is the the subject of their mockery. And what you have to see and understand is the soldier's treatment of Jesus, it's not unique to Jesus. Brutalizing those sentenced to die was a routine thing for the soldiers to do. You know, as long as they did not kill the condemned prisoner, they were free to do with him as they pleased. These men would take what they knew about the charge against Jesus, and in his case, the charge was treason, and they would play it against him in the most cruel and violent and heartless way. So don't casually fly through this scene. Just imagine it for a moment. Jesus stands there before them, 
to whatever degree he could stand. His body is weary from a long night, no sleep. His face is swollen from the abuse that he had suffered at the hands of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. He's bloody from the scourging. His flesh hangs in ribbons from his back. Blood pools probably at his feet. You you would think that seeing Jesus in such a condition would cause the soldiers to sort of back off and just routinely do their job, just go through the motions, get this guy crucified and be done and go home. They don't do that. Instead, they play a cruel game with Jesus. Verses 15 through 20 mention 11 different actions that the soldiers take against Jesus, that they draped a purple cloth around his shoulders. They twisted together a crown of thorns, and they placed it upon his head. They put a reed in his hand, sort of a mock scepter. They dress him up like a king, and they mock him, just as they would if they appeared in front of Caesar. They bend their knees to Jesus, and they salute him. Then they strip him, and they put his old clothes back on him, and they lead him out to be crucified. Lead him out. Out where? Outside the city. Mosaic law required crucifixion to be outside of Jerusalem, to this place called Golgotha, this place of of the skull. So as they make their way with Jesus outside the gates of the city, they encounter a man named Simon. The text says he's from Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in North Africa. It's it's modern-day Libya. It's where Tripoli is located today. So Simon is a Jew who's traveled some distance to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And right at the point Jesus is passing by Simon, he, Jesus, he's in this extremely weakened condition He's been trying to carry the cross beam that the Romans will kill him upon. It's a beam weighing somewhere between 50 and 100 pounds. And again, because Jesus has been beaten within an inch of his life, he can't do it. He he can't carry his own cross. The sentence required the man to carry his own cross up the hill. Jesus couldn't do it. He He couldn't carry it. He's not moving along fast enough. Perhaps he's not moving at all. So a soldier grabs the first passerby, the first healthy Jew they pass, and gets him to participate in the death of Jesus. That Jew is Simon of Cyrene. Remember, Simon, he's he's an out-of-towner. It's very possible that Simon has no idea who Jesus is. He's not from Judea. He's not from Galilee. He's just visiting for the feast. Perhaps he's en route to the temple to have a lamb inspected for the Passover. He may be selecting there a lamb to to purchase for sacrifice so his family can celebrate and commemorate what God did to free the Jews from slavery. Perhaps they're looking for a place inside the city to, to eat the Passover meal. Whatever the errand may be, it's interrupted when the true lamb of God, the lamb that takes away the sin of the Lord, when he comes into view, unable to bear his own cross, Simon is ordered to bear it for him. Remember Mark 8.34? It's been a few months ago. What did Jesus tell his disciples in Mark 8.34? He told them, If anyone was to be his disciple, he would have to come after me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And why were those words from Jesus so shocking to the disciples? Because the cross was an emblem of suffering and death and shame. They thought they were going to be in the king's court, in charge of the king's dominion, carrying out the king's bidding. They didn't know following the king meant taking up a cross. 
Jesus said, to really follow me, you have to follow me to the cross. You have to associate with the cross. You have to associate with my shame. And one of the most degrading acts imaginable would be to carry the cross of a condemned man. No soldier would stoop to do it. Romans were exempt from the cross entirely. No Roman could be killed on a cross. No Jew would ever think of doing this, especially not on the Passover. And that's because to do something associated with such shame and death and guilt, to carry a Roman cross beam, that rendered a person ceremonially unclean. So now for Simon, the Passover, it would be over for him the moment that he, that he touched that cross. The very thing he's in the city to do is now null and void because he's brought into the death of Jesus. The word compelled in verse 21 carries with it the idea of force. Perhaps it was the, under the threat of death that caused Simon to go ahead and pick up the cross and carry it, regardless of those circumstances, Simon would be forever associated with the most important death in human history, the death of Jesus Christ. He would never be able to get away with the fact that he carried the cross. And that's you and me as well. Think about this. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a person of the cross, You associate with the cross at its most intimate level. You proclaim in putting your faith in Jesus that his death, his death on the cross was for you. It was in your place. And in so doing, you embrace the shame of the cross. You embrace the way of the cross, the freedom of the cross, the grace of the cross. Your life becomes cross-centered and cross-focused. It's as Martin Luther was fond of saying, crux probat Omnia, that's Latin for the cross interprets everything. The cross encompasses everything. That's the life of a Christian. Thoughts, deeds, actions, decisions make their way through the cross of Christ. Other than where he is from, the only other thing verse 21 says about Simon is that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And that's a detail that I'm really glad Mark included I'm really glad he included it. Why? Well, if I'm telling you a story about someone you don't know, how do I make the story meaningful to you? Usually by connecting that person or that story with someone you do know. Mennonites are the best at this, right? You're, talk, you're discussing someone you don't know, and then, oh, they're the cousin of so-and-so. Oh, okay, this is all coming together for me now, right? I mean, this is the way the web works around here. And that's what, Mark's, that's what Mark's doing here. He, he knows the Roman Christians who would receive his gospel account. Remember, I've said over and over again that Mark's writing this gospel to, deliver to, the hand, to, to, to be delivered into the hands of, of the Roman church, to the church at Rome. And the church at Rome, he knows, Mark does, he knows that they don't know Simon the Cyrene. They, they don't know him. But he provides this little verse, this little interjection as a way of connecting Simon and therefore connecting the death of Jesus with some people the Roman Christians would know. Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus. How do I know they, Alexander and Rufus, were acquainted with the church at Rome? Again, because Mark mentions them. 
why would he mention them if they were not somehow in association with him? If you want further proof of this, you can look at the end of the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul is signing off the book of Romans, and in verse 13 of the last chapter, 1613, he says to the Roman Christians, greet Rufus, who's chosen in the Lord. Greet Rufus. There's a Rufus. He's a, he's a prominent member of the church in Rome. Paul knows him. I think it, I think Rufus's, I think it was Rufus's dad who was Simon, this man who carried the crossbeam of Jesus. So think about this again. These Roman soldiers, witlessly, mindlessly, cruelly, they grab this guy out of the crowd. This guy who in the providence of God is brought face to face with Christ and he is now forever changed. He becomes a part of the church. Acts chapters 10, uh, 11 and 13 tell us that there is a church established in the city of Cyrene. Maybe this experience here caused Simon to start that church. I don't know. Simon shares the gospel with his sons, Alexander and Rufus. His sons become believers and end up with their mother, a part of the church in Rome. It's as if God is in control of everything. In the middle of the parody and the punishment of Christ, there is this lightning bolt of divine providence that just, that just ripples on and on and on. And that's how God orders history. That's how he orders your life. Folks, you're never just a passerby. That's what this text calls Simon, and it's intentional language. Mark's pointing out, listen, Simon's not just a passerby here. You're never just a passerby. I love the book of Ruth. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, Ruth uh, is, is with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and they've, they've left their, their pagan land. They've come into the land of Israel, and they're gleaning from the field of Boaz. The law gave them right as, as those without a home, as those without means to glean from the fields and to take what they needed so that they would be able to survive. And, and if you know the story, it says that Boaz just happened to be passing by and noticed Ruth. Just a funny little turn of phrase. Just, it's this reality that things don't just happen. If you're a believer in Christ, it didn't just happen to you. No, God sovereignly and providentially put you in a place to hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, to be nurtured in the gospel. And perhaps for some of you, that place is today. That place to hear and respond to the gospel is in this service, that you come in here today. You're not just a passerby. You don't just happen to be here because you're visiting family or because this is the 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 place that you thought, oh, we'll just go there today. No, you're here sovereignly and for a reason, and you're here to hear the gospel. You're here to hear about how Christ was crucified on the cross. You're here to learn what it means to put your faith in him, your trust in him, because without it, you're under the just condemnation of a holy God. If that's where your heart is leading, or if that was God, excuse me, if that is where God is leading your heart today, listen closely to this next point, the passion of the Savior Something interesting about Mark's gospel, you know, when Hollywood wants to portray the death of Jesus, it does so by focusing our attention on the physical details of his suffering, the graphic nature of his flogging and his execution. Those are the things that Hollywood would almost always bring to the forefront. Mark, however, he places all that in the background. He gives minimal attention to the act of the crucifixion. He simply says, and they crucified him, sort of anticlimactically. 
But there are a few periphery details. I want to look at those first, verses 22 and 23. When Jesus arrived at Golgotha, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh. This was a narcotic-type mixture. But it was not designed for the condemned man's comfort. It was designed for the soldier's convenience. Here's what that means. The Romans did not care how much Jesus and the others suffered. They weren't giving him a first century version of morphine to sort of ease his pain. No, they offered him the drink because it kept the prisoners from struggling as they nailed them to the cross. This is simply to make their job a little bit easier. But when Jesus is offered the mind-numbing drink, he refuses it. And that's because Jesus came into the world to die for sin. He came to drink the dregs of God's wrath not to drink some painkiller that would numb his heart and mind. Jesus wanted to do what, he was, what he's about to do with all the clarity that he could possibly maintain. He desired to suffer the full measure of the punishment that I deserve, not some sedated version of that punishment. He, he did this for me. This is not just God pouring out his wrath. This is the Son receiving all of it for you and because of you. It's as John Stott wrote, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Yes, the soldiers are carrying it out. Yes, the Jews engineered the verdict, but it's our sin that's put him there. We killed Jesus Christ. After the soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross, they sit down at his feet and they gamble over the the only possessions that he had in this world, the clothes on his back, which implies that Jesus was crucified naked, just adding to his shame. And again, that's all the extra information Mark gives us about the crucifixion scene. It was the third hour, meaning it was 9 a.m. in the morning. He would hang outside there, the city, for six hours for all the hundreds and thousands of Passover pilgrims to see and to scorn. Commentator James Edwards writes, Every totalitarian regime needs a terror apparatus. For Rome, it was the cross. The refined citizen of Rome never spoke of the cross. It was too awful. Cicero said, The cross did not become a symbol of the Christian faith until long after those who actually had seen one died off. Scholar Frederick Farrar in his classic book, The Life of Christ, He describes a Roman crucifixion this way. He says, A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and that death can have. Dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. Some commentary there. It was meant to kill you, but kill you slowly. To keep you alive, to keep your consciousness clued in to what was being done to you. He goes on. The unnatural position made every movement painful. 
The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds, inflamed by exposure, gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. All these physical complications caused an an internal excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself a delicious and exquisite release. One thing is clear from that. First century executions were not like our modern ones. The Romans did not seek a quick, humane, painless death. They did not seek to preserve any measure of dignity for the criminal at all, not even close. They sought an agonizing torture which completely humiliated the individual. It was all by design. It kept their subjects in check. By the hundreds, if not thousands, they would crucify criminals just to deter crime and keep the peace in their empire. They had perfected the art. And it's important that we understand the humiliation and the shame, not just the physical aspect, because as we, as we see the mocking here, it helps us realize part of the true agony of Christ's death. This isn't just physical. And it's that humiliation which leads to this last point in your notes, the provocation of the scoffers. As I said, Mark is quiet about the details of Christ on the cross. His focus really is on the mocking of Jesus. The soldiers continually mocked Jesus. Those who passed by did the same thing. The chief priests and the scribes were mocking Jesus. Even the two criminals hanging beside Jesus, they mocked and they, re- they reviled him. Mark makes it clear. No one respects or honors Jesus in the moment of his death. Simon. Simon is the only one in these scenes not provoking Jesus. And, and what I mean by provocation here is Look at, look at what all those surrounding the cross say to Jesus. If you have such power, save yourself. Come down from that cross. The chief priests, they say, man, he saved others. He cannot even save himself. Let Christ, the king of, king of Israel. You see the, the sarcasm there? The king of Israel, let, let him come. Let him come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They're, they're provoking Jesus. He is capable of everything they're inviting him to do and much, much more, and yet he stays on the cross. He stays on the cross. Why did he stay on the cross? Because of you. Because he loves you. He, he wants to be obedient to the Father and his purpose is to save a people for himself, which means to save you. That's why he stayed on the cross. So if you doubt God's love for you if, you, if you question whether you should really trust him with everything in your life, if you think, man, if I were God, I would have given up on me a long time ago, if that ever crosses your mind, consider this. If, if the suffering Jesus, if what he endured did not make him give up on this, nothing will. If what he endured in that moment, if he didn't just, just come down off the cross and do exactly what these guys were provoking him to do, if he stayed on the cross in that moment and didn't give up on you then, why would he give up on you now? He would not. By way of conclusion, listen to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, this is David describing his own afflictions. But the clear, the clear meaning of Psalm 22 points to what would take place on the cross. 
David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries that out from the cross in another account. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? He's utterly alone. He's, he's alone. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. That's clear in this text. People walking by just shaking their heads at Jesus. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lions. These soldiers just surrounding him, mocking him, deriding him. And then the physical anguish. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. He's literally just dissolving. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs, dogs, a word for Gentiles often. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. How do you respond to the cross? When the, when the cross comes to mind, has the astounding nature of it just faded? Do you read Mark 15 or Psalm 22 and get stirred at all? How should you respond to Jesus on the cross? You should, you should bow down. Not like the soldiers. No, 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 no. Not, not in mockery. Not in faux worship. But you, but you bow down. Get as low down as you can possibly get. And, and, and weep that this is what it cost. This is what it cost to redeem you. Your life. This is what it cost to bear away your sin. This is what it cost the Son of God to bring you into fellowship with the Father. Bow down, brothers and sisters. Weep, worship, worship. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners, that's us. Ruined sinners to proclaim hallelujah. What a Savior, what a Savior we have. Oswald Chambers wrote that all of heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. First Peter says that it's something that the angels look into continuously. They never stop seeing it. They're so marveled at the gospel and what it took for us to be saved that they just never stopped looking at the cross. So Oswald Chambers, all of heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. Hell is afraid of it. While men are the only ones who ignore its meaning. Be in awe of the cross. The communion table. This is what the Lord has designed to, pre- to prevent us from ignoring the meaning of the cross, from somehow distancing ourselves from it, from it just sort of being pedestrian and unimpressive. I want to invite our deacons up and our musicians as well. We're going to be taking the Lord's Supper today. If you've been here before, you know that we practice open communion at Enid MB Church, which means you do not need to be a member of our church to take the Lord's Supper today. I do want to remind you that you do need to be a believer in Christ. Communion is for those who have trusted in Christ. These are a a visual expression of Christ's saving work for us and in us. 
Therefore, the supper is for those who have put their faith in Jesus, their faith in him to save them from their sin and its reign in their life. If you haven't trusted in Christ, I invite you just to watch us as we observe this ordinance together. Um, If this is your first time to take it with us, know that we'll pass it out individually. You'll hold the element, and I'll instruct you as we take it together. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it. Let's pray for the bread. Father, we thank you for this visible representation of the life of Jesus. A man who, in his obedience, glorified you through a perfect life in a human body. Living the life that we could never live. Embodying the holiness that is so far away from us. But then providing a righteousness that we can claim as our own. We pray for this body of Christ being delivered to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And after he gave thanks, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread together. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Father, thank you for this cup. Thank you for the blood of Jesus shed for us. An atoning sacrifice that makes us at one with you. It covers our sin. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It it accomplishes what the blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish, which is full and complete pardon from our own unrighteousness. Lord, we are people who look to the blood of Jesus as our saving power and grace. And so as we take this today, Lord, Remind us of what it took to accomplish our salvation, the blood of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Cup. He said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup together. For for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray again. Father, we just celebrated a holiday that acknowledges our freedom and at the same time it acknowledges the great cost that men and women took on to provide us that freedom God as we've looked at this passage today and celebrated this supper before us um, we recognize that an infinite cost was paid to provide our spiritual freedom That cost was your son, the Lord Jesus. And so though we come here reflectively and and even somberly, just as we celebrated yesterday the birth of our nation, we we celebrate through this meal uh, new birth in Christ, Christ, a new birth that comes through uh, the resurrected Christ and the the crucified Christ. So thank you for this time and this place and these people uh, that we've been able to worship you in spirit and truth today. Bless us as we go from here in a few moments. In Christ's name, amen.